our friends at Audio Engine have sent us some really nice speakers to outfit the studio at Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories with, and it has made a difference. Plus, they're so easy to move around. So, you know, sometimes when we have a party, they're they're out there providing the music as well. If you want to experience uh, really nice speakers at an affordable price, Audio Engine is your ticket, and you can get a special deal when you uh, check out the link in the show notes. Not only will you get premium speakers for yourself, Audio Engine promises to kick a little bit back to this show, to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. So support us and support your listening habit, Audio Engine. Check it out. Hit the show notes now and uh, see how you might be able to change the way you listen. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everyone. You might know. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com if you want to get involved. That's how this show works. People send letters. We do a bunch of research and report back. And today we've got this one. It opens with... A fun sentence. Tell me I'm not on lewds. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, I heard that Dimebag Daryl was offered the guitar gig for Megadeth, but turned it down because he wanted his brother Vinny to play drums. Mm-hmm. How cool would that have been and how music history would have changed? I love the show. Keep telling stories. Thanks, Jason, the lewds dude. You, you ever done quite lewds? No, man, negative. And, and that lingo was like... That was gone by the time I was old enough to like be into <laughs> drugs at all. Like, I don't know that that was like available at at that at the guy's house you went to to buy drugs. So, at, so Ludes. Know. I mean, Elvis was into Ludes, uh, but Ludes get associated Elvis, with with music other than Elvis, music. but but not metal typically. Yeah. Ludes were a big part of the disco scene yeah. in the seventies. Literally, you're talking about what they were called. I, I, do you know the term disco biscuits? That's what they used yes, to call them. And now you think about them with, unfortunately, with Cosby. Oh, God. Um, with Spanish Fly and, and the Wolf of Wall Street and that whole that thing. Yeah. They, they definitely got used for some nefarious means despite their propensity to relax and help a person feel euphoric. So I do hope Jason is not, in fact, on loots. I will say that. Yes. That's right. And Jason, I can tell you definitely... You are not on lewds, Jason. You, you, you are, are not on lewds <laughs> because that rumor you're asking about is 100%. Oh true. my god, let's just jump right into this. Tell me how you feel about Pantera. Fuck, I love Pantera, man. I, in the early 90s, they basically kind of took over Headbangers Ball, like mm. they were on it, it seemed like all the time. And Ricky Rackman, who is the host, clearly buddied up a lot with with those guys so you saw a a lot of that and that band was great and as far as the 90s went metallica went classic rock and pantera just leaned into being heavier yeah they they were definitely like a t-shirt band for me that's a phrase i introduced back when we talked about the misfits because I, i i feel the same way about the misfits i for sure knew about their branding way before I knew anything about their music because I would see people wearing those t-shirts. But here, let me see how much you know about Pantera. Which came first, the band or the race car? Yeah, it's the race car because <laughs> Vinny, Vinny Paul is on... Uh, how, how much do you like Pantera? <laughs> Vinny Paul has said 
that a friend told him to name the band that in high school because it's a badass car and it's Spanish for Panther. What's the, what's the thing from Anchorman? What's the sex Panther, the sex Panther. <laughs> and if you want to go deep on the message boards and, and man, this is some stuff I would never talk about. It may or may not be the name of Jesus's biological father. <laughs> Depending on where you fall in that conversation, I'm just assuming Brian has more to say about it than me. Listen, you're just naming a whole lot of reasons why I both wouldn't and shouldn't have listened to that band when I was in high school. So if you fall into the category of Brian, uh, which if you do, let's real quick just tell you the thing you need to know about Pantera. There's two brothers, Texas brothers. They're Abbots. It's Vinnie Paul and Daryl. And from the early on... There's a third family member who is so important to the story, and that is dear old dad, Jerry L.D. Abbott. Yeah, let's talk about Jerry for a second. And let me ask you this. This is sort of the question I'm curious about from doing the research. Do you think this band happens without Jerry? No, it doesn't. And I'm going to tell you why totally. And I was thinking about where to talk about this. And we've got to talk about this right now. So... At some point, Daryl wants to play the guitar. Dad is already a producer-songwriter. And he's standing in front of the mirror with Ace Freely makeup on with a guitar he doesn't know how to play. What does Dad do? He teaches his son Kiss songs. And until 1994, they recorded those records in in their dad's studio. If you don't know anything about Pantera, the Paul brothers, LD is important in that he is the music business guy in the family first. He's writing country songs before the boys are born. He actually has minor success. Like there's a tune, uh, a Buck Owens, Emmy Lou Harris tune that he wrote. Play together again, again. That's the name of that song. And he has some aspirations to be an artist himself. He's trying to make it just as a singer. Yeah. Not just aspirations. Jerry LD. He has three charting singles between 78 and 82. And one of these songs, it hits 62, number 62 on the charts. It's called I Want a Little Cowboy. And here's <laughs> what that song is about. It's about an expectant dad who's planning on a rodeo career for his son, who is not born yet, and one in which he seems to be in in charge and then he finds out at the end of the song that his wife has a little girl from that period of time the the classic country song construction a story that repeats in the verses and then there's a twist ending whether or not any of his stuff is calculated or foretold in a milk toast country ballad uh, it is undeniable that jerry has this very heavy hand in the first few years of what his boys create because He'd been paying the bills working in a recording studio as an engineer while he's writing songs, like you mentioned. So he helps produce and release those albums. Uh, the, everything they put out between 83 and 88, he has his hands in, and he manages the band during this time. And so let's be clear. 80s Pantera was playing 80s metal. Do, do you have any of these early Pantera songs you recommend? No. I mean, they all kind of <laughs> suck. I mean... They they all do, and I think it's like David Copperfield magic. How it's hard to find them, you know. It's like there's there's certain artists that's been able to find the whiteout to put yeah, yeah, like yeah, to yeah. take make make things disappear a little bit. You know, you can dig around. Um, you can dig around on YouTube. I think I threw some in the show notes. I appreciate a song called Widowmaker from Metal Magic, which is the very first record. 
That's a bop. It still holds up. Yeah, the Pantera that is typically thought of by most metal fans starts in 1990, and that is the Cowboys right. from this Hell. Is, this is what you mentioned, right? The, this next string that hits puts yeah. my headbangers ball. And and then 92 is vulgar display of power. And there's a lot of things that gets them into this place. Uh, Atco Records, an imprint of Atlantic. You might have seen the Rolling Stones on that uh, that sticker, oh, that yeah, label. Yeah, yeah. They get a new producer and new management. But for the purposes of Jason's question, great question, Jason, by the way, we need to stop before we get here. Yeah. So midway through the 80s, the band replaces their singer with a guy named Phil Anselmo. And around this time, thrash metal starts to break wide. There's these big influential albums coming out. And the first album with Phil will be the last 80s album. It's the one before Cowboys. And it's called Power, Power Metal. metal. <laughs> <laughs> this is, so this is like the bridge between yeah, yeah, the yeah, two yeah. eras. And the comparison here roughly is like Judas Priest. Yeah, I, I dug up this quote from Phil uh, in 2013, someone asked him about this record, and he said, to say I'm proud of it, no, I'm not. But to say that we as a band were still trying to discover who the fuck we were and what we could do, that's very evident. This album's not a success. <laughs> it doesn't chart. But it is after its release that Daryl gets a phone call from one Dave Mustaine. Hey, I, I want to make sure to mention that Daryl used to go by the name Diamond Daryl during the 80s period. And that, my friend, as you already alluded to, is a Kiss reference because Dimebag loved Kiss. Did he love Kiss? He was buried in a Kiss casket. Way ahead of ourselves there. But when Daryl started to look like the Daryl we know now with the, you know, the colored goatee and, and all that and the little shorts, when he started doing all that, he felt like Diamond was not the right modifier for his <laughs> stage name. So he acquiesced the name that Phil liked to use for him because he was paranoid about getting caught with weed. And who is <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so the story is that he just never wanted to be carrying more than a dime of weed around. And so let's talk about Dimebag Daryl. Some people, you'll read it, it'll say that Dimebag is one of the greatest guitar players of all time. How, how do, you, do, you, do you feel that might be the case? I, I, I think that he definitely is in terms of being influential. And he like stepped up the game of like, oh, like what ZZ Top was kind of being this kind of groovy like thing. Like he they accelerated that into metal and uh, no one else is really. That's that. an interesting take. I haven't thought about yeah. it that way, but I can see that connective thread. Yeah. So what did they yes. call that groove metal? Yeah, groove metal, power groove, or whatever. Like at the time, like I don't know, we called it Pantera, you know. But like <laughs> now, it it really does. It sets him apart. And it's interesting, really, if you think about like da -da 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 I'm just making the Cowboys from Hell like noise. <laughs> that his roots are Kiss and, and country, country music. Yeah, right? yeah it's, it's super really cool. Interesting it that it, he got there from from those two genres. Okay, so we 
we've set this up from the Abbott Brothers perspective, but let's talk a little bit about Megadeth. Where are we in Megadeth history at this point? I feel like this is another band that you definitely can give us cliff notes on. Well, Peace Sells Who's Buying, that happened, that's 86. Okay. And that was their sophomore effort, and they jumped to Capitol, got a, a major record okay. deal out of that. They're writing about politics instead of girls, Uh-oh. getting taken seriously. They have a little MTV exposure in 87. They joined the Alice Cooper Constrictor Tour, which we mentioned oh, yeah. when we recently talked about Winger. Yeah, I can't believe we got to reference that. Just I really did twice. Funny. It's funny how these things crop up over and over. So they're actually a little ahead of, ahead of Pantera in terms of becoming a band that the world's noticing. Right. And, and taking not as a joke or as a flash in the pan, but taking seriously. And to that point, Penelope Spheris does... That exactly the downfall of Western civilization part two. You you I mean, will find kind- a way to bring that documentary up if in any way possible. <laughs> but oh, but yeah. it does I guess it does apply here. It does because they are they're put as a contrast against hair bands. And if you ever liked 80s hair metal, hair nation on Sirius XM, our own lots of black heavy metal t-shirts in the 80s watch that documentary soon it's a must see so their musical careers are ascending in megadeth but the personal lives of the band members are falling apart at this period there are so many drug problems they've got to leave the european leg of the monsters of rock tour because one guy's drug issue i mean it's all a total mess and so dave develops this transition plan that when i read about this i felt like this is very practical mustaine figured something out Oh, yeah. Uh, this is terrific work on his part. So the guy playing drums at the time is called, his name is Chuck Beller, or I think I guess that's how you say it. He had joined the Megadeth camp as the drum tech for Gar Samuelson, their previous drummer. So Dave sees the succession plan possibilities here. And when he starts to get worried about Chuck, he makes sure that Chuck has a good drum tech. Everybody see what's happening here? <laughs> So he hires a guy named Nick Minza. And when things go south with Chuck, Nick is the on-deck guy who gets to take the gig. But at the same time, Dave's getting suspicious of somebody else in the band, and that's this guy he's got playing guitar named Jeff Young. Young ups the ante by hitting on Dave's fiance, so he gets he gets fired from the band. Fun side note. Have you ever heard the story about how Jeff Young got hired in the first place? It's freaking awesome you tell it because it's great i love this so he is the guitar teacher for jay reynolds jay reynolds gets a call to replace chris poland in megadeth now i don't know if you've caught on to this yet but dave mustaine hired and fired a shit ton of people in the history of megadeth it's really just dave mustaine at this point uh but so Chris Poland's leaving. Jay gets hired to replace him. Jay needs to learn all of the complicated solos, especially from Peace Cells. And so he hires his guitar teacher. He says, listen, dude, I'll give you a bucket of chicken and some beer and probably some money if you can transpose out like what all of this looks like on paper. And it takes him such a small amount of time to do that that when Mustaine finds out that he was able to do it so quickly, he rescinds his offer to Jay and hires Jeff instead. (laughs) Yeah, totally weird, right? So now things have soured between these two. Now Dave needs to hire yet another hired gun. So he calls this dude who he knows from this band who we have already talked about called Pantera. He calls 
Diamond Daryl. Diamond Daryl. Mustaine's quote about the whole situation is, quote, fate would have completely changed if I would have called him before I called Nick Menza. And here's the rest of that story. Jason, by the way, this letter was awesome. Just saying. So Dave, this is from him. He said, hey, Daryl, I'm looking for a guitar player. And he goes, can I bring my brother? And I went, who's your brother? And he goes, Vinnie Paul. Don't you know Vinnie Paul? He wanted to bring his brother and have him play with us. And I go, oh, man, I just hired Nick Mensa. So can you imagine what Vinnie and Daryl could have been with me and Dave Ellison? It would have been pretty cool. So let's just go ahead and let Jason know for sure. You are not on Ludes, probably because Megadeth did all the Ludes for you. <laughs> all of, there's, just, there's just in, a string of former guitar players strung out on quite Ludes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I will say, all joking aside, in researching this story, I actually found something more shocking and definitely more bizarre. This guy, Nick Menza, yeah. he's the reason that Dimebag Daryl doesn't play in Megadeth, right? But yeah. he and Daryl have another connection. They both will die on stage. So give us a little background on Nick Menza before we hit the crescendo here and talk about what unites the two of them. First, got to talk about Nick Menza's dad, just like we've talked about the Abbott Brothers' dads. Right? Oh, hold, wait. One thing we should say about LD, there is an LD autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. It is, it is wild, wild, wild. He had a Twitter account that was active until like, I don't know, sometime in the last 10 years. And you can go watch him try to sell this book online. Uh, and you can get a feel for what this book is like. So I, I believe I threw a note in the show notes, a link for you to check it out. Um, oh. it, it's something. But anyway, tell us about Don Menza. Don, he's a jazz saxophonist who played with some heavy hitters. Uh, Stan Kenton, Buddy Rich. In the 70s, he's in the freaking Tonight Show band. Oh, my God. As for Nick, he's playing the drums as a toddler, and he gets his first pro gig at 18. When he's in the band Rhodes, the band that features Kelly Rhodes, yes, that is the brother of Randy That's the brother of Randy Rhodes? Unbelievable. So after that, then he does some of this typical LA musician stuff where he sits in with a ton of LA metal bands and then he transitions to session work. He's actually on a recording with Fogarty at some point. He's doing jazz stuff, blues stuff. And then he catches the attention of Chuck Baylor, which we talked about of Megadeth and he becomes his drum tech and eventually he will become his replacement. Don't forget that an easy way to support Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is through Patreon. Patreon.com backslash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories puts you into a reservoir of extra content from the show. Yeah, there's tons of stuff there from extra episodes where Murdoch and I talk about playlists or top five lists that we've made, uh, all the way to outtakes, extra moments from the show, especially recently. I know, you may not think we edit, but we do. We do a lot of editing on the show, and sometimes there's big chunks of our conversations that get cut out for time, and you can have them. They're up there on the Patreon, along with a weekly newsletters where Murdoch and I run down music we're listening to, things going on in our personal lives, headlines from the rock and roll world, a whole lot of stuff. Uh, you can get involved and uh, make it really easy to uh, get in touch with us. There's a, a messaging 
system within Patreon uh, that uh, makes it very easy to communicate directly with both Murdoch and I. So if you want to do all that, if you want to be a little closer to the show and have a lot more content uh, for your listening pleasure throughout the week, then go ahead. Patreon.com backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. Five bucks a month, ten bucks a month gets you two different levels of access or just, you know, create a free account and see what you're missing. You can do that as well. <laughs> it's patreon.com backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. How do we talk about him dying on stage? I, so let's tackle that chronologically. So that means we're going to talk about Dimebag Daryl first. And I, this story is fairly well known. Right, right. So quick history, Pantera. Um, after Dimebag turns down Dave, that sounds fun. After Dime turns down Dave and the Megadeth gig, they put out Cowboys from Hell, and then things start to, to happen. And instead of load and reloading, they go heavy with Far Beyond Driven, which becomes their only number one record and probably the heaviest number one LP on the Billboard charts ever. A couple more albums, and the traction really takes hold with some big songs, big tours. But Phil had a back injury, and it spirals with booze, pills, and then heroin. He overdoses in 1996. He actually legally dies. His heart doesn't beat for like five minutes, and then they bring him back to life. And all this time, a pretty big rift has grown between the brothers and Phil. Yeah, so if you fast forward just through the end of the 90s and into the early 2000s, the brothers officially disband Pantera at the end of 2003 after Anselmo basically quits talking to them and spends all his time on side projects. That's according to the brothers, although... Phil says it was mutually decided on a break after 9-11. So the brothers then, Finney and, and Dimebag Daryl, they decide to start another band. And this one is called Damage Plan. And Phil does a whole lot of things. The project I liked the most was Super Joint Ritual. The thing I disliked the most was Phil doing the White Power Salute at a Dimebag tribute birthday thing. But we're not even going to talk about that at our show today. Yeah, there's a few things that get a little problematic about these dudes, but let's talk about this Damage Plane record. So they put out a record almost exactly 20 years ago. It was February of 2004. It does pretty well commercially. And then they go out and they play it live. And it's that December, December 8th, Columbus, Ohio. This is where things go very, very bad. And you know, there's another rock and roll tragedy, December 8th. That is John Lennon. Oh yeah, is that when he died? That's when he got killed. Nineteen eighty. All right, yeah. let's let's since we're just jumping in here, let's go ahead and offer a trigger warning because this is an extremely upsetting story. If you don't know the details, we're just warning you. Pantera at their height were playing festivals and big venues, but as often as the case, you start over, you start back at small clubs. So that night in Columbus, they were playing at a club that could fit six hundred, but they had only sold about two hundred and fifty tickets. I find this. Shocking. I mean, Columbus isn't a small town, and it's Vinny and Dimebag. And I read that the tickets were like eight bucks. They couldn't sell more than 250 of those? That just seems crazy to me. But I, I, you know, when I read about this, I'm a club show guy. And you know this about me. I love seeing artists in small venues. You know where my favorite venues are and which ones I like to hang out in. So I relate to this story on a different level than I think some people do who maybe don't go to shows like that all the time. When I read this firsthand account of sort of what goes down and how it goes down, it feels very familiar. Like I 
I understand the setting viscerally. The man who will be held responsible for this incident is a 25-year-old man named Nathan Gale. He had been in the Marines, but only for 18 months. He'd been working a lot of blue-collar jobs and was playing semi-pro football. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the original reporting from the days and weeks after this incident, it's all still available on the web. So you can see how this story is told initially and how it develops. But what seems pretty clear now is that you just have a man whose mental health has fully deteriorated. That's correct. He had a diagnosis as a paranoid schizophrenic, and he wasn't taking any medication at the time. Now, what people want to fixate on in the early reporting is this question of why he did it. Right. But I think why he did it becomes moot when you attribute it to being mentally unwell. The reason that is said that Nathan Gale, they, they like what Nathan Gale is thinking or what causes him to take these actions in his own head at the time seems to have been loosely connected to his relationship with Pantera's music in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes you hear that Gale was mad about the breakup. I don't actually think that's, that's the, the actual story. It seems a little more consistent that. He had this delusion that he had written some of their songs and they had stolen them from him. So it's a cold, uh, long December Midwestern night a few weeks before Christmas, and he doesn't have tickets to the show. He waits out in the parking lot through three opening acts, jumps a fence, and comes into the club through the side door during Damage Plan's opening song. If you've never seen video of Dimebag playing, he just bangs his head the whole time. And that's what he's doing when this 250-pound man comes barreling towards him with a a 9mm, and he's completely blindsided. So I'm just going to read from the original Rolling Stone story. Daryl Abbott lay on the stage bleeding from his head. While most fans fled, one concert goer, Mindy Reese, a registered nurse from Columbus, rushed forward. And I said, this is now... Mindy talking, fuck this, I'm a nurse. He needs help. I did chest compressions for 15 to 20 minutes, and I kept saying, Dimebag, come on, come on, please stay with me. Abbott was near death by the time paramedics arrived. This gets lost in the story that a lot of people don't know is that um, Dimebag isn't the only person that gets killed here. There are three other victims. There's a 23-year-old fan, his name's Nathan Bray, a damage plant crew member whose name was Jeff Thompson, Um, And then a club employee named Aaron Hawk, who was uh, 29. Now, here's more from that Rolling Stone piece. From the backstage area, Officer James Nijemeyer appeared carrying a 12-gauge Remington shotgun. He walked past a stack of amplifiers and saw Gale, who had taken a male hostage. Holding his gun to the unidentified man's head, Gale began moving toward the rear of the club. From 20 feet away, Nijemeyer fired once and killed Gale. So this officer had been blocks away, and there was a call that went out that something was going on at the club. He gets there in three minutes. After the call goes out, he goes in through the back of the club, and all the chaos has already happened. There's already carnage. People are running around trying to leave, and he sees Gail near the rear of the stage. There are other officers that had shown up and come in through the side doors, and Gail is trying to retreat from the other officers, and to do so, he grabbed a hostage. So this is that officer talking in a later interview. Quote, there's no doubt in my mind that Gail didn't know I was there. From where I was, I could see he was focused on the other officers coming in the front. I was still hoping that he would let the hostage go and retreat. I was just trying to get as close as I could to assess the situation, and I was hoping he'd release the hostage so I wouldn't have to shoot. But then, while he was waving the gun around, he took it and stuck it to the hostage's head. 
and that changed the whole situation. So this officer gets himself 20 feet away and takes a single shot with a 12-gauge and kills him instantly. It'll later be discovered that the gunman had 35 rounds of ammo left. Yeah, I mean, he is heralded as a hero, uh, this officer is, in the aftermath of this, mostly because of that fact. Because the thought is, we have no idea what this guy was going to do or what other damage he would have caused when he had that much ammo. Now, 10 years after the incident, the Columbus Dispatch does this where-is-he-now sort of piece on the officer. And a long story short, as you might imagine, this severely fucks this guy up long-term. Within a few years, he's reassigned to the robbery division and pulled off of the front line of the police. He eventually just goes to work for the city in other capacities because he doesn't want to be involved in law enforcement anymore. He gets diagnosed, of course, with post-traumatic stress disorder and severe anxiety disorder. It's, it's all a lot. Yeah, and this is a bad couple years for club shows. At the time, it hasn't been a full two years since the station nightclub flat fire in Rhode Island. Oh my God, were they that close together? Yeah. 2003, beginning of 2003 and end of 2004. Yeah, you're right. They were pretty close, the fire in in Rhode Island. So do you remember having trepidation about going to shows? Yeah, no, not really. I was always thinking about this. 2004, I... Not really, but I think it was because I was young and dumb. The venue that I used to attend all the time at this point in my life was a room that historically was known as Clunk Music Hall, and then it became just the Music Hall. And at one point, I made a deal with the fledgling ownership to post their shows on their website for it to basically be their webmaster, uh, a 2004 version of that, which was pretty uncomplicated, just so I could go to shows for free. And that room was all cinder block. And, And I shot part of a documentary in there, And I remember during the shoot, I had a big camera, and I was leaning with my back against the wall trying to get a shot of of the back of the stage, and I just slid down because the walls were sweating so much. There was so much condensation from just how warm it had gotten, how many people were in this room, how sweaty it was. It was just always sweaty and oversold. And I have story after story of like talking my way into a sold-out show, and you know, so the station in Rhode Island is part of the whole problem with that situation was that it was oversold and it only held about 400 people, which was the size of clunk. So that resonates now thinking back on it in a different way. This room they're in in Columbus is a little bit bigger. It's strange to think about how easily things can go wrong in these situations when people don't agree to play by the rules. I remember going to a show very much oversold. There was an opening act that I don't think anyone knew was coming. Uh, and he had a guarantee too. And so I went up to the bar and I got a Foster's oil can. And it was so crowded. I had to hold the Foster's oil can over my head because I couldn't have it near me because it was everyone was just bumping into each other. I mentioned that they both die on stage. I'm happy to report the passing of Nick Menza isn't quite as shocking and tragic, though. It's still not something I'd wish on anybody, victim or audience. Uh, But this is an interesting parallel, like I've already pointed out. Yeah, it is worth mentioning. This is how he's exited out of uh, Megadeth, the HR department, how they contacted him. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. So, okay, so before he dies, very early in his career, let's just say Mustaine was very bad at at the the firing of people he, he, just someone needed to talk him through sort of the the regular protocols of being human 
when it when it came yeah. to like replacing his musicians. Yeah, and after a decade in the band, Menza finds a tumor on his knee. He has to have surgery to remove it. And while he is in the hospital, Mustaine calls him and says his services are no longer needed. But Nick will work on some solo stuff, some collaborations, and then almost rejoin Megadeth a few years later. Uh, but he is told that he no longer has quite the the hard skill skills to do it anymore. Then he almost like cuts his arm off. In 2007, there's this power yeah. saw accident. Power saw. Which is terrifying. He has to have reconstructive surgery on his arm. And then he bounces back, and he'll continue to work with different acts all the way up until... 2016. Right. And on May 21st, 2016, Mensa was performing with his band OHM, which could be OM, at the Baked Potato Jazz Club, which I assume the only way you pronounce that is the Baked Potato Jazz Club <laughs> in Studio City. Three songs uh, into the set, Mensa collapses. And an autopsy later showed the cause of death was congestive heart failure. He was dead on arrival at the hospital, age 51. I did learn during the research for this episode that while dying on stage is fairly rare, there have actually been quite a few folks who almost died on stage or left the stage in a dramatic manner to die later. There's a link in the show notes to a couple of places where there's like catalogs of instances of this sort of thing happening. Most of them not super well-known uh, actors or performers, but a, a few notable ones worth mentioning. I did not know that the French playwright Moliere collapsed in a coughing fit on stage and then was carried to his house where he died shortly after. So yeah. I, it's not, you know, we've never gotten to say Moliere on this show before, but we're now connecting yeah. him to the lore. Done. Uh, Tiny Tim, um, <laughs> which I learned his name is Herbert Cowrie, I guess. He died uh, November 30th, 1996, which doesn't seem that long ago, but is it's almost it's 28 years ago. Um, at a Minneapolis fundraiser, Tiny Tim cut short his rendition of, you might know, you can imagine, Tiptoe Through the Tulips. He turned to leave the stage. He was filled by a heart attack and was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. So, but here is something that happened in the town where we live here. Oh, where someone yeah, did I not forgot die. about it, that. Oh, my it God. Is an, it is an amazing story. So, Richie Faulkner is a guitar player in Judas Priest, not an original guitar player, but nonetheless, he, he is there. He survived a aortic aneurysm. Oh, my and God. You don't I forgot know about what, this. And if you don't know what that is, that means the large artery in his heart basically ballooned and ruptured, and he started having, like, blood filling his chest cavity. So they were playing here uh, in Louisville at the Louder Than Life Festival before Metallica. And he felt really weird after the set and got into a chair afterwards and literally thought he was going to drive back home to Nashville, which is like about a three oh and a half God, hour drive. He, he had no idea what happened. And at some point, someone put him into uh, to take him to a hospital and he was in the hospital for a long amount of time uh, in an operating room. And they found out that that is what happened to him. So here's the quote he has, which is the most rock and roll thing that I'm <laughs> going to be able to say today. And you're going to hear today. And I'm glad I get to say this uh... to you. And you get to hear this through your big eardrums. This is a quote uh, from Richie. One question I had for the doctors 
was how I was able to go on for so long because, yeah, once those things rupture, you've pretty much got a couple minutes and you're gone. They think that maybe my adrenaline was so high because we were playing and my heart was pumping hard enough and fast enough to keep me going long enough to get pumped up with more adrenaline oh my to keep me going to the hospital. So I can literally say that the power of heavy metal <laughs> kept me alive long enough to save my life. It was literally possibly saved by metal. By metal. You got to say it like that. It was saved by metal. Yeah. Hell yes. I appreciate that you also brought it back to Judas Priest, the band that Phil and Selmo made Pantera sound like in the late 80s. It's all very, very good stuff. If you've got a uh, question for us, it's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash stories. You can find us on Instagram, too. Again, yes, backslash stories, Or visit our website, wearethestoryguys.com. We appreciate you for being part of the show. And what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.